Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell, reporting live from Seattle Airport. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to have a special episode. So Caleb, what are you thinking about today? Well, Terrell, what I'm thinking about is our newest teammate, Torrance Witherspoon. And today, I just got to say, it's a very special episode because we're both really excited um, for you to be here. Thank you, Torrance. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm excited. Well, Torrance, I, I mean, I guess I have to ask you now, what are you thinking about today? You know, I'm going to take us off on a trip for just a second because I, this has been on my mind all week. Um, I'm sure that the listeners will learn that I, I talk a lot of pop culture, television, film, uh, of course, a lot of politics as well. But I'm not a huge comedy genre fan. Like I would say, like for, when it comes to film, like comedy is probably like my third or fourth favorite genre. But I have had Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar on my mind all week. Uh, and I finally got to watch it last night. And it's hilarious. It is more Kristen Wiig hilarity, brilliance. Um, and it's like, it's bride, bridesmaids, but like kind of amped up, like more music, uh, like musical numbers. It just like goes way over the top. And it was so brilliant. Uh, and I think as a Midwesterner, it's kind of making a play on Midwestern culture and our, and our accents. And I just loved it. So I cannot get over how great this film was. I think that everyone should go out and watch it. I love um, a female powered comedy. You can never miss a good opportunity to make fun of the Midwestern accent, which our listeners is going to get a are going to get a lot more of as I literally do it in that moment. Yeah, I should probably uh, just let you guys all know you're going to hear a lot of nasally A's from me. A lot of nasally A's. Well, Caleb, I know you said Torrance was on your mind, but did you have anything else before I jump in? Sure. Uh, I was watching an episode of uh, Bill Maher the other day. And I don't know, I, sometimes I watch him. What I appreciate about his show is like, he usually has both sides come on to his panel and they dish out the issues, um, which I always kind of find sometimes the conversation is really fascinating. So this week he had Steve Schmidt on and Steve Schmidt made an interesting comment where um, he's a registered Democrat now, which is kind of interesting. He used to be a Republican, but he still has some Republican values and he still blames what he called the illiberalism of the right and the left on the left side. It's still coming from American universities. And I made, it made me think, because even someone like Steve Schmidt, who calls the Republican Party a party that's for autocracy and not democracy, still has uh, American universities and uh, burn it down left politics on his mind. I love it. I also hope our listeners aren't hearing the announcement that I'm currently listening to. But while, yes, being an airport is on my mind, I actually want to piggyback off Torrance a little bit because I just watched um, the entire season of It's a Sin featuring Ali Alexander and by far one of the most gut-riching, heartfelt shows I've ever seen available on HBO Max because we love a shameless plug for HBO here at Dangerous Likely. Um, but if you've ever listened to years and years, he's one of, his voice is very unique and very noticeable, but he his sound is so thoughtful. And I think that's the best way I can describe the show. Um, to give the listeners a little synopsis, it's set in the 1980s and it does an amazing job humanizing the AIDS crisis of the 1980s through the 90s and does a really good job of showing the impact that it did and also just the 
the straight inability misogyny made the AIDS crisis across the world. Um, I think we here in the States tend to get focused on Reagan and how his policies and his politics impacted it. But this show is set in um, the UK and you see how it became an American disease first. It wasn't seen as a global global pandemic, ironic as we sit through one. Um, And it, it genuinely hindered and killed so many because of our inability to own the fact that sexuality can be fluid and our inability to have conversations around um, the, the importance of knowing and understanding what's happening around us, not just making it a political issue. So that's where my head is at, very deep as always. Darrell, I'm, I'm loving that. I've, I'm really looking forward to watching It's a Sin. I am a huge Ollie fan. I love years and years. I love their music. Um, we'll have to plug some of that on the playlist so that the listeners can can be introduced to, to a great musician and a great band. Uh, oh, absolutely. After I watch it, we should totally discuss the show a little bit more and kind of the larger con- conversation around um, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and the politicization of that. Yes. Also, take a tissue box. I'm not super emotional, as most people know. Definitely cried a couple of episodes oh that means i'll be crying the whole time yeah so be ready but the first two episodes are really happy really fun (laughs) yeah i I, i've read some reviews that said like that that's one of the things they really got right is showing the joy of the people Mm -hmm. not just the tragedy and the heartbreak which of course there was plenty of that but the joy of the of this culture and of these people so like i'm really excited about it So to keep our loyal listeners updated, Terrell and I have envisioned much more for this little podcast experiment for some time now. And we're so excited to have Torrance, part of the team, to get us there. Torrance is going to be a great addition to um, helping us develop and find growth strategies and find a structure that best represents and brings voices of the country and voices of people to the pod to show off what it means to be a part of the American dream, but also to have some really interesting conversations around politics and pop culture, just like we did a few seconds ago. Yeah. And you know, thank you guys for having me as a part of the team. I'm really excited about the work that we're going to be able to do going forward. Um, I very much feel like I align um, with kind of like the American dream, the American experience um, that you guys are trying to meditate on with this podcast, uh, whether that be from pop culture to politics to the functions of government. Um, and I think that, you know, for the listeners, that's going to be how a lot of our conversations go. When I come on the podcast, sometimes we're going to be talking about the things that are affecting Americans, about the things that are influencing Americans, television, film, music, um, but also the functions of our government and the pieces of legislation that are going to have large impacts on people's lives. And so we just want to get into that and talk about it um, from a millennial perspective, but also just like an average American perspective um, and have the conversation in a way that is relatable um, and, and, and open-ended as we continue to work through these pieces of legislation that come through and the issues that our government is facing. So um, I'm really looking forward to be able to, to have these conversations with two guys that I, that I respect professionally, but also that I call friends. And I, I think that that's going to add a really great dynamic to the podcast moving forward. Um, and we're going to do a little bit of that today as we get into uh, a myriad of different um, topics to discuss. I know Caleb's been reading a lot about the filibuster and he knows my opinions, but um, I'll let you set us up for this <laughs> roundtable conversation, if you will. <laughs> Thanks, Terrell. So as Torrance just kind of said, we're going to be really getting into the debate about things that affect Americans' lives. And arguably one thing we haven't done on the show is talk about 
the infamous, infamous or famous filibuster. I don't know, you choose. But I kind of wanted to start out uh, with reading some work from Ezra Klein, uh, who is a New, York Times column, a New York Times columnist. And while he supports removal of the filibuster, I'm not necessarily sure that I do, but I do appreciate his take in his column, which is called The Senate is a Data's Nightmare. So first, he calls it depressing that Joe Biden's agenda will live and die through budget reconciliation, then goes on to say, quote, budget reconciliation reveals the truth of how the Senate legis legislates now. To counter the minority's abuse of the filibuster rule, the majority abuses another rule, ending in a process that makes legislation systematically and undeniably worse. The world's greatest deliberative body has become one of its most absurd. But that absurdity is obscured by Baroque parliamentary tricks that few understand. He kind of goes on to further discuss the limitations of the budget reconciliation process and how it's about dollars being spent more than actual policy because with budget reconciliation, uh, it has to have some kind of fiscal impact. Um, so for example, the big voting rights bill that Democrats dream of um, for, the, for the People's Act, um, the John Lewis uh, uh, voting rights, I don't remember the whole name, voting rights bill, um, is kind of dead if we have to rely on this process. Um, and then kind of one last quote uh, from Jeff Merkley, um, the Democratic Senator from Oregon. Why should it only take a simple majority to do tax cuts for the rich, but it takes a super majority to address the integrity of our elections? That makes no sense. Access to the ballot shouldn't have a higher hurdle than helping the rich get richer, which is an interesting take on that. So I'm kind of gonna open up the floor from here. Um, obviously there's two sides of this argument. Um, it's part of the Senate, we should keep it. And uh, it gets in our way of getting stuff done for Americans, what Americans actually need. Uh, Terrell, how about you start out? Uh, how do you feel about the filibuster and uh, what's the what's the way for Democrats to get their agenda past it? So when you say you're opening the floor, are you like a wrestling announcer? Or are you going to tap us in, tap us out? Because I'm not sure how this conversation is going to go. Um, Terrell's a real comedian. <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> got to lighten the mood somewhere, right? Um, I think the article that you use, Caleb, does a really great job to set a standard or set set some parameters for what we're going through right now everyone's talking about what happens if we genuinely get rid of the filibuster and uh, i think the issue that we run into is no one knows what happens if we do i keep challenging look no further than what's happening with reconciliation one of the the points that it makes clear is the majority is exploiting reconciliation to push through policies and get around the minority being able to do x y and z um and I lean on a comment made by the former president, Barack Obama, who highlighted that we need to rise above and ends justifies the means mentality because we're here to answer to the people, all of the people, not just the ones wearing our party label. And that for me is the crux of this issue and the crux of the reason we need to be having a more rounded debate about the filibuster, not just the idea that, well, the Republican Party can stop this or, well, the, the Democratic Party can stop this. Filibuster has been used by both parties over decades. And why are we here in this moment now asking for it to be changed? Is it because things have really, really fallen apart and we're having issues? Or is it because we're not getting what we want and now we're starting to throw a little bit of a tantrum? I actually, I, I truly do agree with that we do have to live with the reality that both parties have abused 
the filibuster for their own gain. And we've, we've all kind of reaped, reaped what we've sown there. And I'm not, and actually I don't want to debate, right? Because I think a debate says that I, I have a stance that I truly believe in. And I am one of those people who like, I can see all the valid arguments for getting rid of the filibuster. Absolutely. I understand why, why we should keep it because of the behavior of each party, specifically ours. Um, but part of the, I, part of, I think the conversation that gets lost in this or that isn't being talked about enough is the origin of the filibuster and the like so obviously we have the filibuster which is traditionally as we understand it to go up and and to actually filibuster to speak for hours to keep from voting on a piece of legislation as a way to block that legislation or up or keep it or influence other people to vote against it right but what we what we've come to is not the filibuster but what we, what we have is so filib we have filibuster we have cloture and cloture is is what requires us to have a 60 vote threshold that that didn't arrive until around a hundred years ago. That's not in the constitution. That it, the, the filibuster itself is not in the constitution. It's a parliamentarian, uh, uh, I don't know what you, what you call it, a, a rule. It's a, par a parliamentary rule, but it's not in the constitution. So the origins of, the, of this actually is not as pure as I think some of the conversation suggests. And I think that there's more, that there's more to be talked about there. Because I, you know, according to GovTrack, from 1989 to 2009, we only had 590 cloture votes. But since 2009, we've had 930 cloture votes, which I think that, that, that that's kind of the thing that I'm talking about is, is this efficient or is it being used, is it a, another symptom of the radical partisanship that we've seen over the past 12 to 15 years in politics that is only making our institutions less efficient, that is making, that is using partisanship, partisanship to hold up legislation that has broad support across the country. I just want to talk about like, how is this affecting the efficiency of the Senate? How is it affecting the pass of a, passing of legislation and not so much getting caught up on what what party has done what, when really my, my core issue with, the, with it is that I cannot stand when legislation sits without debate or sits without a vote when it has broad support. That to me is just a dereliction of your duty to the people that you represent and is just um, obstructionist politics, which I I think there's no time for obstructionist politics. It's absolutely BS. So Torrance, uh, no time for obstructionist policy, po politics. So my question to you is, do you think that that, do you think the answer is simply to get rid of the filibuster or do you have an answer at all? Is it more complicated than that? I, I think it's more complicated that, than that. And I certainly don't feel comfortable saying saying one really or the other, right? Because I actually think that I would like to have more knowledge about parliamentary procedure to understand the way that it affects how, how bills make it to the floor to vote. Because um, I think that it's, it's a two-sided thing, right? Because constitutionally, it's not even a question. Those are not a part of the constitution. It is a parliamentary procedure. And so I think I need to understand that better. However, I think that the part of this conversation is that we just have to have a broader conversation about the way the legislative process. Absolutely. And something else I think worth highlighting uh, that you mentioned is the Senate, you, you bring in cons constitutionality and, and how the Senate functions. The Constitution does a really great job of setting up the institution itself, but it doesn't set up the function, which we saw very harshly this past semester. Um, once we encountered uh, Mitch McConnell essentially obstructing the entire process of the Senate by not coming up with a governing resolution with a 50-50 Senate. And that that is, to your point of parliamentary procedure and, and logistics of the Senate, 
the Senate lives and dies based on the parliamentarian. It follows all the formalities. It has a president who presides over. It has the pro temp. It has all these pieces. Um, so one thing I want to ask you, Torrance, um, kind of related to something that you mentioned about the history of culture and the filibuster, but also touching back on the point that Caleb made with the article that introduced this whole topic um, and someone I introduced recently, um, the former president, Barack Obama, called the filibuster and culture uh, a Jim Crow relic and has really kind of helped push this movement along for why we need to get rid of the filibuster by using, uh, I don't want to call them tropes, but using these tropes and using these pieces to really galvanize and encourage individuals to say, well, yes, we want to get rid of the filibuster because it's this relic of systematic oppression and, and causing um, uh, inequities in our government. When you highlight the history of it, do you find or do you feel that those arguments are valid and justified in the charge to remove this? Or is there is there some political marketing happening to really gem up some of the move to get rid of the filibuster? I would answer that like uh, in part with a question, are we serious about actually eradicating the systemic racism that exists in our government? The fact of the matter is, is that it is a Jim Crow relic. And, I, and, and one way to talk about that is the constitution highlights in how much of what chamber needs to be, needs to vote for certain things, whether that be impeachment, whether it be two thirds for removal, those are highlighted specifically. Nowhere does it say that you need three fifths in the Senate to pass certain legislation, a 60 vote threshold. It does not say that. So I think that whatever part of our issue is, is that we have used parliamentary procedure to, to as, a, as used as a roadblock, institu instituting the cloture, filibuster was a cultural thing. It, and to me, it was almost, um, I think it has respect because it was like sport, right? Like you actually get up there and you do something as a human representative of your, of your district or of your state and you push back against legislation by actually using your own means, right? By talking, by, by trying to convince someone. I think that there's actually a place for that kind of um, commitment in, in, in our political debate or in our legislative debate, but not instituting cloture, right? Um, which puts, in, in my opinion, yes, like I know when you're talking about when, when Barack Obama said, you know, the ends don't justify the means, but what were the beginning of this? Where did this come from? What was the motivation behind instituting the cloture? And when I think that when we look at the motivations, we know that that is a part of the Jim Crow relic, right? We did not want to give too much power to states, to, to Northern states, to Union states, to states that um, were more uh, pro-integration, et cetera. I think that we have to understand that it wasn't just innocent, the creation of this cloture, and it wasn't necessarily just to stop um, from, from filibustering, to, to make filibustering go away. It was, it was intentional to create a, a procedure where we had to have more than 50% representation uh, or to vote for a piece of legislation, meaning we had to appease to the Southern states to pass legislation. And that's just a fact, right? I mean, I'm not saying that it's the only, the only specific thing that we have to discuss when we're talking about um, the inception or the conception, excuse me, of, of the culture, but rather what has it been used to do? And are we really answering for the systemic racism in our, in our government? No, that's a great point. And I, I can agree with and, and own that um, coming out of the 19, 
19 um, Congress passing this legislation to cause that appeasement to force bipartisanship essentially is very important and interesting to this conversation because it did at least in its inception or and maybe i'm rose colored glasses in this moment but it did in its inception bring upon this this feeling of okay if we can't get we we can't make this radical shift without at least slowing it down and I, I think something that we talk about in america all the time is the fact that change here is gradual it's not swift it's not abrupt it's gradual unless it's the supreme court and then it can legalize whatever it wants eh, that's a different conversation for a different time um but is it appropriate or is it is it factual not factual is it appropriate to in a time where we're having real true conversations around equity, real true conversations around systematic racism and oppression for leaders of parties and, and for individuals who are, who are very educated in these conversations to tether it to something that they know will gem up and galvanize individuals to say, yes, yeah, let's eradicate it, let's abolish it, absolutely, without them having that understanding that while we might not agree with it all the time, while we might be frustrated with how it has been used in certain situations, there is one tried and true thing is when it was used appropriately and when, when the parties actually took a second to step back and say, what is this change that we're doing and where does it come from? There were some good policies that came out of it. Let us not forget that culture and the filibuster existed during the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, and it passed with overwhelming support. Granted, Democratic, the Democratic Party lost um, the Dems in the South. There have been moments where the use of this have brought out the, the true spirit of the body politic, if you will, that I question, are we missing that because we're so focused on this idea that America isn't doing enough? When I would argue America's never done enough. And, and maybe that is a part of this conversation, but is this really the issue and the thing that's gonna fix that? Or are we opening a Pandora's box that's gonna lead us into further inequities and further problems? Um, something I even brought up to Caleb, of uh, the Senate was intended to be so separated from what the House experiences by, by representing individuals in a state, but it was also supposed to be different than the uh, White House that, has a, a specific person and can change parties more quickly, are we running the risk of opening so many more issues than we actually intended? I mean, probably. That's, I think, I think that's the issue when you layer, when you layer the, like the, the band-aids on top of each other to hold on to certain, certain majorities, to hold on to power. Um, I think that something that's not being discussed here, and not that I know a ton about what that compromise would look like, but because cloture was just something that the, the Senate essentially invented upon itself, there is a way for them to pass, to, to amend what that looks like, what the requirements are, and, and, and look no further than originally with cloture, it required a two-thirds vote, and then in 1975, they changed that to a three-fifths vote to 60 vote threshold. So it's something that can change and it should, and if it's going to be something that, you know, it's not 
from the constitution that Senate has instituted it themselves, then it then there can be a conversation about changing that a bit, just like we have governing resolutions. And I think that that's, that's a part of the conversation because I go back to my point of um, how inefficient is this for legis legislation? Kind of off um, your point, Torrance, and your point as well, Terrell, is if the filibuster really is something that creates more problems if we get rid of it than, I guess, solves problems, um, I kind of have a little current current day scenario at which I'd like to get your takes on. Um, so across the country in a bunch of different Republican controlled state houses, there's been something like over a hundred voter suppression bills that are being introduced. And I don't know if a lot of them have been passed yet, but they've at least been introduced. Um, so my question really is how do we live with the filibuster? Uh, how do we get things like the voting rights bills that have passed in the house um, passed with the filibuster still in place, because this seems kind of existential. This is a topic that, that excuse my language listeners, but quite frankly, pisses me off. Um, voter suppression is incredibly insidious. It's anti-democratic. Um, and it, it's something that has existed in our country for is pretty much as long as voting has existed or as long as we were extending any voting rights to anyone other than the white man. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I think that if this doesn't anger you, then how, if, if this kind of, if this kind of behavior by state legislatures, specifically partisan Republican controlled state legislatures that are limiting voting rights, voting access, how can you look in the mirror and say that you're a proud American? How can you say that you love this country when you know, when it is knowingly doing wrong to disenfranchise marginalized people in this country. It is disgusting that any of these people who are elected to represent their district can bring it upon themselves to introduce bills that are going to limit access to the ballot box. It is fear because they know that, what, that, the, um, that their constituents are changing, uh, that the demographic is changing, and they are trying to fight an uphill battle against ruling in the minority by keeping people from going to vote. In Georgia, they want to, they, specifically in Georgia, and I don't know if you've read, read on this, but in Georgia, on um, the get out the vote or souls to the, souls to the polls on the Sunday before election day is a huge thing and long has been. And this isn't the first state since, they, since the Supreme Court um, struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act that required these Southern states that traditionally had voter suppression tactics to have to submit any changes in law to the Department of Justice. Since they've done that, this happened, I want to say, I don't want to misspeak. I think it's... It's North Carolina or South Carolina that they did they did they did eliminate the souls to the polls and the ruling in that circuit court actually said that this is one of the most um, one of the most obvious smoking guns that we are we are likely to see in modern times. Now in mm -hmm. Georgia, where obviously the black vote pushed us over the edge to turn it blue, we are now going to take away voting on Sundays before the Tuesday vote because they know specifically that black churches do souls to the polls, and that is incredibly insidious. And if it doesn't piss you off, I don't know what to say. Absolutely. I, there's nothing else I can add to that. It, and actually, there's one thing I would add to that, because I did introduce them a little bit earlier, and I do think it's an appropriate uh, point to make. There is no justification for what the Supreme Court did when they made that ruling against the Voting Rights Act. They made it on a narrow technicality and, and essentially kicked it back to the Congress and said, this law is outdated look at how great our democracy is, figure it out and make something better. 
And now we see what happens when a body of our government that was never meant to have as much power as it does. It is, it is literally an absolute power, which is another reason why I have a lot of issues with the, the idea of adding another justice and all these other pieces. But the Supreme Court itself was never intended to have the power it did. It gave itself the power through a literal ruling. And we're seeing the repercussions of that right now. We're seeing that they are also contributing to the denigration of our democracy by determining what laws are antiquated or too burdensome, too burdensome for our individual states. And um, I, I, on my way to my travels, I saw the, the graph that tends to pop up once every Black History Month that shows the real time scale of America from 1916 all the way to the 1800s, you have slavery. You leave the 1800s and you get to the 1960s, you're in segregation, Jim Crow. And then you finally make it to modern day. Finally, you have this red, yellow, green, like a stoplight, like telling you, oh, this was when it was really bad. Uh, here's the yellow where, where things were not as bad, but still bad. And now we're in the green. Now we're successful. And I, I challenge people to tell me, where are we successful? Where do we see that things are working well? When you have a party that genuinely, genuinely is so terrified that marginalized people might have a voice in their own government, that they stop at nothing to suppress it, they will challenge a ceremonial piece that the Constitution gives Congress. They will challenge electoral um, uh, certification just in hopes that they can further suppress. And then they will go so far as to say, well, we don't want you to vote on Sundays. That just doesn't seem right. You need a separate ID than your already state-issued ID to show up to the polls so we can guarantee, oh, after you vote, you need to sign a document that we can then cross-reference and make sure that it is you. It is, it is that. It is those pieces that are frustrating. And to bring us back to the filibuster piece, it's that. And, and maybe this is just how I was educated in my civics class, which we can also have a conversation about how bad it is in this country. But it's that fear that I think I have sometimes of what happens when that party gets back in power and they don't have this force that is going to make them have to think oh, well, if we don't have one or two of the people on that side to be on our side, then we can't pass this. What happens? And, and I, I would argue we've seen it. We've seen it because of, of Henry Reid. He made the decision that he thought was appropriate, blah, 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 blah. I got I, into an argument once. Oops, sorry. One, friend, I, I, really, I am curious to hear what uh, Caleb's thoughts are on, on voter suppression. Um, yes. Do you, do you have an opinion, sir? <laughs> Well, I do, and it feels existential to me. And I, like I echo all of all of y'all's thoughts as well. But I just like I want this. I support this these bills, and I want voting rights bills passed. So so we can't take away the right to vote. It's a democracy. We should all have the same right to vote. Like we shouldn't be putting up barriers to people. And that's what's happening across the country. And again, I don't know. I don't know if the filibuster is the heart of that problem. I don't think it is, but it's certainly an obstacle in 
kind of making the country, I guess, a little bit more freer in terms of voting. And I just don't, in terms of this topic, I don't know how you go forward when you have a party that like the minority just abuses the rule and doesn't even try to work, doesn't even try to work with Democrats. And I'm not saying Democrats haven't abused it either, but they don't even try to work with Democrats on these big policies and bills and this, this agenda that the vast majority of Americans support. So I guess, and I'm, I don't think there's going to be answers in this little conversation, but what's the path forward here? We have to stop this. I, I, I certainly think that it has to do with the partisanship conversation that we're having and being very honest about that. Now, I want to I want to let the listeners know, I don't assert for one moment that the Democratic Party is some innocent party that is constantly being wrong and is never doing the wrong thing and doesn't have its own issues. It most certainly does. And I will be happy to get into that as we continue to go along. However, there is one party that is very obviously openly and blatantly and look no further than these 100 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures across the country that is hostile to democracy. They are hostile to democracy. Look no further than obviously the bills, look no further than the insurrection, look no further than them constantly trafficking and, and, dis and, and disinformation or misinformation, excuse me, and a disinformation campaign across the country to that. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't hesitate to say it, but I hope that it is received in the correct way. That The through line is racism. The through line is racism with those things. And they are hostile democracy because, and we, we can talk about it and it talks about the origins of racism and, and especially the vote, the cost of racism on all of us, not just people of color, but also on white people because of the way that this system has evolved. We have to be honest about our, our past. We have to be honest about what, who these bills are targeting when they're trying to limit the, the franchise um, to vote. And I think that we cannot continue to gloss over the fact that race is a large factor in it. Absolutely. And uh, even to your point on partisanship, we have to stop allowing one specific party to highlight its best of the best and its moments of, of great triumph and really focus on where it is in modern time. And the fact that the party it is today is not the party it was back in the 1800s when the president happened to have its title and uh, emancipated the slaves. The party we have today is the party of a bunch of pissed off Southerners who left a different party and went to that one in hopes that they could have a voice in their government. And when we think about bipartisanship, when we think about all these pieces, I think that is the crux of this issue is until we all own that, we're never going to move to a space where we're actually having a robust, real conversation about how we move this country forward. So guys, I think that it's pretty clear that uh, to the listeners that Terrell and I are going to be having some pretty robust conversations about some of the uh, hot topics of our time. Uh, we're two very passionate people. And actually, this is exactly the kind of conversation that I was looking for, right? This is the thing that I was excited uh, about joining you two on the podcast, because we have these conversations, obviously, via text and, and off air. But I think that like we're not always going to have the answers. We're not, we're not here to actually say that we do have the answers, but rather have a really relatable conversation about the ins and outs of some of this legislation or our governmental processes and the way that they're impacting us. Um, and, and I think that that's something that I'm really passionate about, uh, right, is 
we, I think on the news and the media, we see a lot of these issues. And for the average person who's not interested in politics or in civics or government the way that we are, they don't always know like who is to blame for this mishap, right? Who's to blame for this issue? Not that blame is always the main thing, but without understanding how something works, right? You can't turn around and hold the right person accountable. And I think that that's kind of the, the connection I hope to make in our conversations is that, yes, one administration right might have some priorities, but everything that goes wrong that doesn't give you what he, you want from that person isn't always necessarily solely on their shoulders. And I think that if we have enough conversations where we break down the complexity of legislation and governmental processes, we give our listeners some resources to really have better conversations amongst their family and friends, but also to understand the way that they can use their voice and their and their vote and then their dollar as well to impact some of these changes. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having continued conversations with you two about those things. Absolutely. And unless they are Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz, or Bernie Sanders, they, they genuinely get the blame. But otherwise, it is a much more systematic and robust conversation. And I'm very appreciative to have both of you to be a part of that dialogue, but to remind and show that our generational block is educated and is willing to have these conversations even if we aren't being represented in our Congress currently. Um, and we, we genuinely have ideas that will lead to the systematic change that's necessary to make this country better. It, do you mind if I jump in on that, Terrell, just because it's something that I think that we all agree on um, and something that I haven't shared with you two before that I very much agree that, right, we come from a generation who is, yes, by, by numbers, more, more educated on average, but also we grew up in a time where we like, we've kind of tried to shrug off this concept of let's not talk, you know, politics, religion, money, because that's that kind of culture of, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, our parents' culture is actually, I think, how we've arrived in a society where we've, we don't know how to really talk politics that well. We don't really know how to discuss money that well. And we find more divides across religious lines than, you know, you know, yep. prior. And I think that breaking down those things, having the hard conversations off the top, I think that that's going to be one of the chief responsibilities of our generation as we move forward. Absolutely. And we can yeah. do some of that through this podcast. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a little bit upset that you didn't say Josh Hawley as well because, uh, yikes. Honestly, I kind of forgot that he was a senator, so He's don't take that by any blame. If he is even human. <laughs> I will one like fun and note. Um, I'm really loving the social media platforms right now that have moved from Ted Cruz R Texas to Ted Cruz R Cancun to Ted Cruz Q Cancun. So at least now we know that second party that you and I talked about, Caleb, when the Republican Party splits, they're going to literally be represented with a Q. Like we've given up on even trying to pretend like they're not just a bunch of QAnon supporters. So it was it was a very highlighting and and cheery morning to see that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy that we're that we're we're not letting them get away with all this QAnon BS without actually tagging them with it the way that they would like everyone to believe that we are liberal socialists. Yeah, that's kind of the excuse, honestly. That that ever like a lot of Republicans these days just make. It's I'm not going to vote to convict Donald Trump because of these rat. Why aren't we paying attention to these radical liberal socialists? Like that's like the rallying cry now, an excuse of why they don't do things that the majority of people want. And yet we have hope that there's still bipartisanship in this country. <laughs> we love it here. Hashtag filibuster. Am I right? Hashtag let's get into bipartisanship more deeply at some other time. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Burn it all down. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I honestly think people will be surprised to hear what my perspective on bipartisanship is. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a work together at, as if we can kind of guy. Yeah. I Go probably, nuclear when you absolutely have to. I'd, I'd probably agree with that. I'd agree with that. We're really looking forward to having Torrance on more frequently for similar conversations. Definitely looking forward to having you back so we can have a conversation about It's a Sin. Um, we love a good HBO Max series, so more than excited to have you to talk about pop culture, have you to dive in some of these really deep um, topics and, and really show and help our generation and other individuals listening right now. Um, understand just the, the robustness of that topic, but also the different pieces that we need to be focusing on. I, I just wanna say like, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for the opportunity to get to do this with you guys and for, for inviting me to join you. Um, I think this is really worthwhile work. And I think that we're gonna be able to make, whether it be big or small, an impact on people's lives. And I think that that is all worth it. Well, Caleb, I think it's time for you to take us away. Yes, we are two Torrents and we're, we're just so excited. Um, I'm going to invite you to also say your name in the close. So I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. Mm-hmm.